Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. right we need to start with the graph of desire but first and foremost let's talk about this praying mantis business the praying mantis is key so the passage comes to us at the bottom of page five notice the last sentence of the last full paragraph he's looking for a formula that will help him understand the essential relationship between anxiety and the desire of the other. That's what's at stake here. In order to understand anxiety, we have to understand desire, and not just any desire, the desire of a big O other. We're gonna talk about all of these terms. We're gonna get them all ironed out for you, enough for you to at least diagnose your parents. Okay, so here's the fable. For those who weren't there, he says on page five, the amusing image I briefly set out before you, myself donning the animal mask with which the sorcerer in the cave of three brothers is covered. I pictured myself faced with another animal, a real one this time, taken to be a gigantic, for the sake of story, a praying mantis. Since I didn't know which mask I was wearing, you can easily imagine that I had some reason not to feel reassured in the event that by chance this mask might have been just what it took to lead my partner into some error as to my identity. The whole thing was well underscored by the fact that as I confessed, I couldn't see my own image in the enigmatic mirror of the ocular globe. Okay, so what we have here at the opening of seminar 10 is this weird kind of elusive reference to some weird praying mantis example that he's working out. Here's how we figure this. There's Lacan. No, imagine yourself. You're wearing a praying mantis mask, and you don't know if you're wearing the male or the female praying mantis mask. And along comes some horny female praying mantis. Now, if you know anything about these insects, you know that the female is huge, much larger than the male. And that after sex, the female bites the head off the male. So they engage in some kind of like, there's some fuck killing that's happening there. Now, you don't know whether you're wearing the male or the female mask. If you're wearing the male mask, you're fucked. Well, I mean, you're about to have this incredible experience. You're going to have sex with a big, sexy, horny, praying mantis woman thing, and then she's going to kill you. She's going to rip your head off. Okay, that's a pretty horrifying prospect, right? If, however, you're wearing the female mask, chances are she's just going to pass right by you. Many people would rather assume 
this is Lacan's point, that they are wearing the male mask and about to be fuck killed than to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing what's about to come. Anxiety is not knowing what's about to come, but fully realizing that you are somehow potentially more or less bound up with a desirous big other. So Lacan's playing with the idea of the big other. Here it's a little o other that just happens to be huge. Anxiety is feeling that you are caught up, smothered, engulfed is a great word for this, engulfed by the desire of a much more powerful being than you. But you don't know what they're going to do with you. You just know that you're going to get somehow fuck killed or you suspect that's a possibility. Now, obviously here, you are the child. And the horny female praying mantis is the primary caregiver. This is, according to Lacan, the source of anxiety. More often than not, it is a child confronting the overwhelming, engulfing, inescapable desirousness of a primary caregiver. Now, this could be you as a child and your parents flaunting their adult organs around you. It could be you as a child with a single parent who's oftentimes bringing home different partners. It could be you as a child, perhaps with a parent making some sort of sexual reference in front of you, maybe even horribly so to you. It could also be just having a primary caregiver that cried a little too much, that seemed a little bit unstable. Someone, in other words, who did not provide a containing environment for you, who was not able to allow you to feel held. But instead you feel endangered. With them as the primary source of this danger. Okay, this is what he's up to with the praying mantis example. The key question comes on page six. Chevois, right? You can see this in his essay on the subversion of the subject and the dialectic of desire. It's published in a Cree. You can check it out. Let me know if you need a copy. I'll happy send, happily send it to you. Here he's just kind of summarizing this stuff. As you move down on page six, you see in Itals, what does the other want with me? That's the question that you have to face and you're asking as this female praying mantis approaches you, what do they want with me? But the French word for me here is moi, which you also know gives Lacan the little italicized M that means ego, which is why a couple lines down he says, but also a suspended questioning that directly concerns the ego, not how does he want me, but, and here's the key question, it's kind of wonky the way the translator has put it, but it, it, it works. What does he want concerning this place of the ego? 
what does the other want with me at the level of my ego? What are they asking of me, not at the level of the unconscious, not at the level of my split subjectivity, but me at the level of my ego? And the ego, if we can just do some shorthand work here, is this very fragile composite figure that's formed out of a hodgepodge of feeling woefully insecure, fragmented, divided, uncertain, and then coupling that with all of these ideal egos, these specular images of people who we think are awesome, a parent, a model, a celebrity, an athlete, and we squeeze those things together. I feel really inadequate, but someone once told me I look like somebody who I believe is beautiful. And the ego is some figure that tries to hold all that shit together. In the Freudian sense, we have the ego as a kind of referee that's constantly waging and monitoring a battle between the id and the superego. For Lacan, it's kind of like a hyperactive sense of self that is always trying to, and quote me on this, keep its shit together. The ego is the part of us that is always trying to appear as though we know what time it is, know how to dance, have our heads screwed on right. I'm purposefully using these kind of like bumper sticker slogans. The principle that guides the ego, Freud had this right, is the reality principle. The ego knows how to wait in line and not murder somebody. Although I have to admit, I just got a fart app for my phone and I've been practicing with this in line. It is so epic, it's so epic. The toughest part is just keeping a straight face. So I'll be in line and I have this like fart app and so I'll do a really long fart and then there's a long pause and then I'll do a little short fart and then I try and turn to the person behind me and I just say, I'm sorry, and then just keep moving forward. I don't know, I, mean, I haven't gotten much in terms of good reactions from this, but it's a gross violation of everything the ego stands for. The ego at most is going to fart silently and hope for the best. Maybe throw a, shade, a little bit of shade at the person behind you in line. The ego adheres to this reality principle that says, I know how to wait in line and not shit myself. That's the ego at work. It's somebody who, I say it again, the part of us that knows how to keep its shit together. And so the question here about anxiety is, what does the big other want from that part of me? Why is the big ego coming after me at that level? What aspect of my ego is the big other drawn to? Lacan says some stuff on those momentous pages, 45 to 46, that we'll get to tonight about this. He suspects that in the case of the neurotic, and neurosis is about as close as any of us can come to being normal. In fact, normalcy is just what's average, what usually occurs for Lacan. Being normal, though, is not something that Lacan even considers. The closest we come to normalcy is neurosis. One shade removed is perversion, and the clinical structure past that is psychosis. What the big other wants from the ego 
is precisely what the ego can't bear to admit to itself. That it does not have its shit together. That it is as much, if not more so, a fragmented body than a hodgepodge of ideal egos. And Lacan is precise here. The other wants me to signal precisely what my ego can't bear to admit, namely castration. That I am not an ego, but in fact a split subjectivity. Somebody who doesn't know what they want, who is divided, confused, and dependent. In which case, what the other lacks, the cause of its desire, is a signal or a signifier of my own castration. So there's another term we have to figure out here is castration. In the neurotic, this experience produces anxiety. What we'll also see though, is that in the case of the pervert, this is the rallying cry for jouissance. This is the opportunity structure for not anxiety, but enjoyment. The pervert wants nothing more than to show up and be your dildo. They want to be used and abused to help you reach jouissance, big other. The pervert doesn't just assume that they're wearing the male mask. The pervert says, even if I'm wearing the female mask, let's pretend it's a male one. Let's get after this thing that is your jouissance, big other. I'm the one who can get you off. The pervert goes for it. So what gives the neurotic this kind of overweening sense of anxiety, sometimes even acute anxiety, the pervert actually embraces and says, yeah, I can be that for you. I'm happy to be factored in in an enigmatic way into your desire, big other. Now, the key word here is desire. Which is why at, on page 15 in our seminar, if you look at the top of the page, this is the end of his first lecture on anxiety. The top of 15. And with Lacan, what we know is, it's usually at the end of his seminars, at the end of a lecture, that he really kind of comes clean. I, I figure at some level the guy must just look down and realize that he has spent 45 minutes drawing a weird diagram and is like, okay, 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 let me just tell you what I'm really talking about. Okay, okay, okay. And then he just spits it out. He likes to end with something puzzling, alluring, provocative, and if he's lucky, something brilliant. And here on the top of 15, let's guess what he ends with. Notice the sentence starts at the bottom of 14. I'm not developing a psychology for you, a disquisition on the unreal reality that is called the psyche, but a disquisition on a praxis that warrants a name, erotology, from the Greek word eros, meaning sexual desire. The Greeks had lots of different terms for love and desire. Eros is one that points to sexual desire. Eros is one that also gives us the word erotic. What Lacan suggests he's developing here, in other words, is a de desirology. 
not a psychology. If you want to understand the psychology of anxiety, Lacan says, you have to first understand what he understands as the desirology of the human subject. Next sentence, plain and simple. It's a question of desire. That's what's up with anxiety. So just as he starts with desire, so also, also will we. And I want to remind you again what's at stake here. Desire is the antidote to anxiety. It's by awakening desire in another that you can help them stave off anxiety. It is a defense against anxiety. And if you want me to just cut to the chase, I'll tell you why. The cause of desire is the experience of lack. Feeling like you're missing out, missing something. That's what gets desire going, lack. Anxiety is what happens when lack is missing. In other words, when lack is lacking, someone has taken that from you. When lack is lacking and you feel totally smothered and engulfed without any breathing room, it doesn't mean you feel fulfilled. It means you feel overwhelmed. That is anxiety. But in order to understand what it means for lack to be lacking, you have to first understand how lack works. And that puts us on the path of desire. And so that's where things begin for us. Hence, as we've noted, the importance of the graph of desire, which carries us back to the start of the first lecture on page four, where he trots out this famous graph of desire that he develops in the mid to late 50s and eventually publishes in the subversion of the subject essay. We're gonna spend some time working on it tonight. First though, let's pause, take some questions, comments. What's on your brain, y'all? And I will do this periodically just to make sure that we're as caught up as we can be before we take the next step. I just want to um, say that Lacan is so negative. <laughs> I have, when I first read him, I was just, was like, completely inundated by how awesomeness the idea was. But then when I'm rereading him over and over again, I realized that he really counts for the negative experience of being a human. That's Either, so simply put, yeah. and I know you don't mean it that way, Xinhua. I know you mean it as kind of like what a pain in the ass, but he is the great thinker of the negative. And that's really important here. Because what he fundamentally means by castration is prohibition. What Lacan is primarily concerned with, the great source of his thought, is negation at the level of a simple signifier, no. Don't forget the name of the father is the no of the father. That's what he's messing with, with the name of the father. Because in French, Non name sounds exactly the same as non no. He is a negative thinker. 
He, you might even say that he belongs in this tradition of negative dialectical thought out of the Frankfurt School. He's very much in that line that extends from Hegel to Marx to the Frankfurters. He just got a French twist to it. So for Lacan, the negative is fundamental to what he's up to. In fact, I would say that what he is doing at the level of the no, at the level of the nothing, at the level of the no thing, I'd say that's the molten core of his thought, particularly in the 50s and the 60s. So the negative is crucial here. I'm glad you pointed out. Maybe not. Ha maybe that's not how you intended it, um, but he would certainly be like, "Thank you, ma'am." Yeah, I, I wonder whether uh, what wasn't he very disparaging of the positive psychology school, and all these guys. I don't know what positive psychology means, and I'm sure there are some people out here in this audience who would be happy to weigh in on this. Um, do you want to follow up and just give us a little more clarity as to what you mean by that? Positive psychology, in my knowledge, is very limited. Um, but um, as far as I know, it has something to do with being sick of all the tradition of exploring the unhappiness of human life and want to study the positive experiences, not just simple, you know, what we socially label as positive, like happy, or, but they were trying to talk about um, not the sick patients, but the humans that we all consider as has achieved great, achieved great things. Mm -hmm. So positive psychology, that's why the Maslow, the infamous Maslow hierarchy of needs on top of the sense of achievement, the individual who sort of outdid all of us and was able to completely fulfill himself. And um, so that's sort of Maslow's idea. Said that, and also I ran across a lot of that in my study of um, outdoor extreme sports because the positive psychologist has the loudest voice to speak about, you know, mountain climbing, it makes you feel fulfilled as a positive experience. But I, as an inherently a negative person, uh, also a Lacanian, I was looking for, it can't be that positive. There must be something negative in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's, let's put a bookmark in this and we'll see if we circle back around to it. Because the type of positivity and fulfillment that you're describing, I might suggest is um, the horizon for analytic technique. Lacanian analysis would end in the conditions of possibility for something like that. But the work of understanding the theory and technique of Lacanian psychoanalysis, like every good Hegelian, and don't forget that's how Lacan cut his teeth, involves passing through the negative. So that's where we find ourselves right now. And desire is very much about the negative, not that it's a bad thing, in, in many ways, it's it's beyond good and evil, just as language is beyond good and evil. But I want to talk about this graph of desire on page four. Because this is where we start seeing a theory of desire emerging. Incidentally, desire is just that little italicized D in the upper right hand quadrant of the graph. What's important for us is to get a sense of how we get to that little d. That little d is desire. To its left, 
is the mathene for fantasy. And then everything above that, you see the field of castration and jouissance. We're going to have to earn that. Right now, though, I want to talk about how we get to that little d. And I want to do it by conducting an experiment, something I've never done. Some of you may find it hard to believe that this is the first time that I've actually hung oversized post-it notes in my bedroom and surrounded my bed with colorful markers. Some of you may be surprised to see what I have constructed here in my bedroom. <laughs> Hold tight, y'all. So I've been doing this virtual stuff for quite a while, and I'm a little tired of not having my whiteboards. Those of you that have been in the lecture hall with me, you know my office and my lecture halls, it's floor to ceiling whiteboards. And by God, if they're not full after every 100 minute session. And so what I've tried to do here is I've got two oversized post-it notes and a bunch of my kids' markers. So hold on a second. The experiment involves us lighting this up so that I can draw some pretty pictures for you. And the picture I want to draw to start, can you all see this okay? Thumbs up. Desiree saying no. Somebody saying yeah. Okay, well, don't worry. What I'll do is after we're done with this, I will bring the camera up closer so you can see what I've drawn. And I will also... Um, take a picture of this and send it out to everybody so you'll have an image that you can zoom in and really see. Um, and I'll do it in daylight um, if I can. Okay. So this bottom part of the graph of desire on page four, you see how we have a split subject and then an arrow that leads up to a big A in a circle. And then an arrow that hooks from the big A to a little withered S in front of a big A in parens. And then the arrow zips back down to a big I next to a big A in parens. So we're not going to work on all these terms. The bottom portion of this split subject, little I, A, little M, big I, big A, is basically the mirror stage. We're not going to dig into that. What we're working towards is desire. So I'm going to cut some corners here. If you want the full details, holler at me and I'll send you the lectures where I develop these things more fully. Right now, we're going to start with how Lacan develops this graph of desire. The COVID era is so ridiculous. My dog's looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you, bro? So this chart begins, the graph of desire begins with a simple quandary. What happens when a baby cries? Here, it's symbolized by a triangle. Thumbs up, can you see this? Is it just way too far away? No, your blur is on. Yeah, you could turn that thing Perfect. off. It's like a security feature thing. Thank you, you all. Wait, how do I turn my blur off? Change background. 
I got something oh, that I says see. enable background blur, black background blur. Yo, is that is that better? Yeah, yeah that's better. Yeah. Okay, now can you see a triangle? Yes. Too challenging. You can see a triangle. Yes. Okay. So this triangle is a baby. This is the subject of pure need. A baby in need, whatever that need is, they don't know what the need is, cries out. And they cry out, and if they're lucky, that cry reaches the ears of a big A other. Here symbolized and marked as the primary caregiver. This can be a mommy, this can be a daddy, this can be an uncle, this can be a robot, this can be baby Jesus, it can be whatever you want. This big other is the primary caregiver. I mark it as PC. And this is a full other. It's not barred. It's a capital A without a line through it, which means that this is somebody who we think has all the answers. This is like the dictionary, the OED. Every single word possible to be used is in that dictionary. This is in many ways the symbolic. It is language. It is a collection of all the laws, rules, and norms that in this case might govern a family. And I remember when this came to me, my kid was about to be born. I had no idea what was gonna happen. And so I called my brother. I said, bro, what am I gonna do if this kid cries? I'm not gonna have a clue what to do with this thing. Some of you have little kids as you grinning out there. He said, listen, dude, there are only four things that could possibly be happening. If your kid cries, first try and feed it. It's probably just hungry. I said, what if I feed it and it doesn't wanna eat? Okay, okay, then check its diaper. Then it probably just took a shit and needs a diaper changed. Okay, okay, I changed the diaper. I fed the kid, I changed the diaper, it's still crying. Okay, okay, it's probably tired. Try and get it to sleep. Eight hours later, this kid will not sleep. Okay, what could possibly be going on? At that point, my brother says, uh, just call the doctor. Those were the four options. Those were the four options and there are only four options. That is the totality of every possible response I could make to the cry of a baby. Are you with me so far? That's what this big A, the big other is. It is a locus of signifiers, a collection, a treasure trove. It is the dictionary. It is all four of those possibilities that my brother gave to me. Now here's what happens though. When my child cries, I can't show up and do all four things at once, right? I have to choose one of those things. The little S over here is italicized in lowercase which in Lacanian terms means it's lesser than. Here, this little s next to the big A means signified according to the big A. And you don't have to get fancy with this. By signified according to the big A, we mean meaning of the child's cry as interpreted by the primary caregiver. So if big A is the interpreter, 
of the child's cry, and they sift through all the possible responses, little s, according to big A, meaning of the child's cry, according to the big other, is when I've chosen one thing. I've chosen to bring it a blanket, to bring it some food. So this is the field of meaning. Not of interpreter, but interpretation. For all the communication studies folks out there. This is when I have activated my capacity as the interpreter of a baby's cry and decided what to do with it. In this case, I decide, okay, I'm gonna choose food. I'm gonna guess that this cry means the kid is hungry. So I as interpreter will interpret the meaning of this cry as one that signals hunger. And so I bring the child food. Now what Lacan tells us here when he's developing the graph of desire is that this produces something. We'll come to it in just a second. Right now, I wanna suggest that we have need down here, but by the time we get to this level signaled by the orange, we're not just dealing with the child's biomaterialistic needs. Down here, with the subject of pure need, this is like a, just a worm. And if you know kids, you know that at this level, they're just basic little worms. Like all of our, all mammalian organisms are. There's an indoor, an outdoor, and then all these appendages and stuff that help us do worm-like shit in the world. Here though, this is a purely biological, materialistic, not that they like to shop at Forever 21, but materialistic in the sense that they deal with material, with matter. This is bioanimality down here. What happens though, when the big other, the adult, starts to interpret the cries and the bellows coming from this biological register is those cries are taken out of the realm of biomateriality and brought into the realm of sociolinguistics. I write lang here for language. This is the field of signification. The child doesn't know that they're hungry. Knowledge can only occur in the field of language. All the child knows, if it knows anything, is that they're uncomfortable. They cry when they're uncomfortable, no matter what the discomfort is. Our job as primary caregivers is to interpret that cry, assign meaning to it. And that is all stuff that can only occur in the sociolinguistic field known as the symbolic where signification can occur. So what we're doing is we're taking a cry and turning it into a signifier that means something, okay? The word for that in Lacanian terms is not need, but demand. Demand 
is need articulated in language. It's need that has been encoded into the symbolic. It has been assigned some terms. That is the meaning of demand. And so if you really want to like, if you really want to know like what is up with the Lacanian registers, here it is. There's need, there's demand, above it is desire, and beyond that is drive. And the test of whether or not you know what the hell's cracking here is how high you can climb on that ladder. Right now, I'm giving you the first two rungs, need and demand. And once we understand those, desire will follow. And we can keep the drive alive another day. But for now, what I'm trying to point out to you here is how we get this figure down at the bottom. This S means subject, and the bar through it means split. It's a bar subject. Now you can imagine the two sides of this being. This process whereby the baby cries and the parent interprets that cry, assigns it meaning, brings it a blanket, over time produces a little kid and in particular, a split subjectivity. Somebody who realizes that they can't always cry and get what they want, because eventually they learn the same language that the parent has, that the primary caregiver brings to the table, to the point that you'll hear a kid bellowing at the grocery store and the parent will say, use your words. I don't understand you when you cry like that. And the kid is like, yeah, but I just, I just, I just can't. And you have these, these children who are really struggling. They're so overwrought at a biomaterialistic level, but they're struggling to put it into words. And then, and it just, and he, 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 he and then he hit me. And yeah, he, uh, 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 and your teeth are vibrating. You remember this shit when you were a kid? It was ridiculous. But that's the game is you have to figure out a way to articulate your needs at the level of demand. The great irony here, of course, is that when the primary caregiver says, use your words, what they're really saying is, use mine. It's not your language. It's their language. That's why another word for castration is alienation. To become a split subject is to allow yourself to be alienated in a language that was not your own making. You see, the English language wasn't invented to coincide with our births, right? It was here a long time before we arrived. In fact, the great signifier in the English language that is most important to you, your name, was probably chosen before you were even born. If you come from a Sicilian background like I do, your name was chosen generations before because there's a very strict rotation in terms of who gets what name. Thankfully, my parents broke with that tradition because everybody on one half of my family, they're either named Frank, Philip, Joseph, or some weird combination of those things. I got Frank Philip the first, second, junior, senior. I got Philip Frank. I got Joseph Frank. I got Joseph X. I got all these. That's all just three names. But it's all set up through the strict rotation. The firstborn will be named after the maternal grandfather. 
My point here is that the language that the big other subjects your cry to predates your birth and absolutely your cry. You are thrown into it. For those of you on the philosophy spectrum, this is what Heidegger means by thrownness. You are thrown into, dropped into a world that is not of your own making, and you're asked to fit into it. That is why the subject, according to Lacan, is split. Because on the one hand, they are still bio-materialistic beings. In other words, they are embodied. A split subject, each of us, we are all one part embodied and another part disembodied at the level of language. We are also sociolinguistic beings. What I mean by this is that there can be and always are two versions of us. So think of it this way. There's the version of you that felt like crap after you went out partying the night before, and there you are sitting on the toilet in your nasty ass pajama pants, smelling like whatever happened last night. You're just a mess. You got vomit still on your shirt, whatever the case is. You're a beast, you feel me? You are a biomaterialistic beast. And you're sitting on the toilet about to die. And then you get your phone out. And you start looking at your pictures from the night before and you're like, fuck, I look kind of cute in that one. And so you go to Instagram in between taking a shit and vomiting your mind out. You go to Instagram and you post the image of yourself. And there you go, looking fine looking great, before things went south the night before. This is how it works for Lacan. There's always your IRL self, and then there's the version of you that's circulating at the level of the signifier, here at the level of the selfie. There's you IRL in real life, embodied, and feeling awful. I use that image very carefully because the Lacanian origin of this is the fragmented body that all infants experience as their own. And then there's the very polished, clean, put together version of you that you decide to post online, the selfie. This is you at the level of sociolinguisticality. This is you at the level of the symbolic. This is you at the level of the mother tongue. This is you also on the envelope that it's coursing its way towards you right now. This is your name on an envelope. This is your bank account information that Russian hackers just took and you won't realize it until six months later. That's also a version of you. It's you at the level of the signifier, not embodied in your skin, but abstracted and existing at the level of the signifier. Now, if you read Lacan's subversion of the subject essay, you'll see that this is the enunciating subject. 
This would be the embodied person who feels the urge to speak and say shit. And then here is the grammatical subject. This is the being that appears, the part of us that appears in language. Very well represented by the vertical pronoun I. So anytime somebody uses this shifter, we call it in linguistics, I, because it shifts, whoever uses it then becomes the referent for that term I. If I say, I'm the kind of person who likes to go to the movies, I'm already split myself. There's the part of me that wants you to recognize me in society as somebody who enjoys good film, cinema. I might even say, I like to go to film festivals instead. And I want you to see me that way because that brings certain social currency. But then there's another part of me, an embodied part of me, the part of me that felt the urge to tell you that. The part of me that feels insecure enough that I need your stamp of approval. Please see me as a cultivated being. I don't feel cultivated. I can't help but shake and carry with me my bluegrass roots everywhere I go, my Tennessee red dirt upbringing, the fact that I was born and raised in Southern Indiana. I can only hide my twang behind $20 words for so long. But by God, if I haven't learned a lot of $20 words over the years. You feel me? That part of us that feels very much like an inadequate, totally dependent, discombobulated baby is still with us. This is the origin of the split subject. What we layer on top of it is this ego stuff. And usually what we do with the embodied parts of us is we repress them. That's why I chose the image of farting earlier. At most, you're going to fart silently. Usually, this part of us gets shoved into the unconscious. Which is partly why when we dream, we dream of being torn apart. Which is partly why when you have an anxiety dream, it's like you're running as fast as you can, but your legs don't work. You're trying to go down the stairs, but you're just like falling and floating and landing in weird places. You're reaching for something and you can't quite get it. It's because that's what it was like when you were a baby. That's the fragmented body that we've repressed, that memory of being this totally inadequate, woefully dependent, zero motor skill, fuck up. That's why we dream of being torn apart. We dream of the part of us that we feel deep down in our bones, the insecurities. Us on the toilet. That's why I stick with these images. So here's how we get the split subject. Now, I think what we can do is return to some more desk work here because it'll give us a chance to be a little more detailed. While that's happening, though, now's a good chance to ask some questions if you've got them. Hey, Sam, does, yeah. does the feeling there of th that you know deep in your bones of returning to that fragmented space, does that bear anything with what he's doing with Freud's Unheimlich and the Heimlich stuff? 
It's, it does. Okay. It absolutely does. Dasun Heimlicha is, it means unhomely. It's the unhomely. We, we have it as uncanny in the English language. But what Lacan is saying here is what pops up, what appears in the space that we should experience as lack when anxiety occurs is something uncanny. It's like a version of us that is just a little bit off. And so you can think of this too in terms of like um, in animation, there's a term called the valley of the uncanny that maybe some of you have heard of. It's like this percentage. And if you've seen Polar Express, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. If you take an animated image and you make it look 95% realistic, most people are going to go along with that. But when you cross that line, I think it's like 97 or 98%. When you cross that line and it looks so close to being real that it starts to get a little freaky. And instead of enjoying it, kids are now starting to cry because pleasure has turned to horror. That's kind of what Lacan's getting at here with the uncanny. It's a kind of horrific doppelganger or a double that looks human, looks like us, but is very jacked in a way that we almost can't quite place it. Deja vu is a kind of French version of this where you feel like you've been somewhere before, but you can't quite figure out, even though you know you've never been there, and you can't quite figure out the link that's connecting the world you're in now and the one that you're imagining. That's the uncanny too, because you can't quite put your finger on it. Like if you watch Polar Express and you watch those fools moving around, you're like, man, I can't put my finger on that shit, but please change the channel. Turn that off. Whatever that is, like, look at the way that his eyes are moving. Turn that shit off. Stop that. You just want it to stop because you can't quite put your finger on what's so weird about it. That would absolutely be the case. This is a body that looks pretty normal, but is functioning in a slightly fucked up way. They're just a little bit off. And usually we have words like intuition. You know how you're going intu to intuit sometimes? when somebody is not just being nice to you because they want to be nice to you, they have an ulterior motive. You just kind of intuit, you're like, man, something's going on here. This doesn't feel right. And you'll talk about West Coast, not everybody here is from the West Coast, but you'll hear some stuff like, yeah, man, just really vibey, something was just, and that can be good things, or it can be like, the vibe was way off, man. I can't, I really can't explain it. I just, let me just tell you, it just felt weird, right? And so we go to all these like mystical places. You're right, Nicholas. This is exactly what Lacan has in mind. It'll get more complicated than that. The emphasis here though should be on horror. There's something really unsettling. That's why he's bringing up Freud's notion of Das und Heimliche here. Unsettling unhome-like. And that's why I bring up deja vu too. It's like you've been there. You know that place the way you know your home, but it's somehow different. Something's off. So the other important part here about unheimliche that is crucial is that it brings with it a metaphor of space and place. What Lacan is really working with here is a topological understanding of anxiety. Topos, topos. He's thinking about the spatialization of anxiety. 
And the metaphors he uses from start to finish in our talk, in our lectures for today, are those of spatiality. In fact, there's a passage early on in the seminar where he talks about how much space does he need to give people in order to talk about anxiety without causing them to feel anxious. You'll note, for instance, the spatial metaphor that occurs on pages eight to nine. This is the stuff that, this is the reason why it's great to read Lacan many times, because this is the kind of stuff you wouldn't pick up on unless you've read the whole thing and know what anxiety is about. At the bottom of page eight, I have insisted on making this last reference, which is so close to home that it might strike you as problematic. So as to indicate how I mean to put you to the question that has been mine from the start, at what distance is anxiety to be poised so as to speak to you about it without immediately shutting it away in a cupboard and without leaving it in a vague state either? Well, my goodness, at the right distance. See, it's all about getting your spacing right. If there's no space, if somebody's up in your grill, it's not the right distance and it makes you feel anxious. Lacan is basically like messing with fools here. I mean, one that doesn't put us too close to anyone. At this familiar distance that I've evoked for you in picking up these recent references, the distance from my interlocutor who brings me his paper at the last minute, and the distance from myself who must take the risk here with my disquisition on anxiety. The risk he's taking is that he's gonna say too much, too soon, and mess everybody up. He's gonna cause people to feel anxious about anxiety while he's trying to teach them what it's all about. If he doesn't give them some breathing room. And then note how this ends. We're gonna try and take this anxiety under our wing. That won't make it any more conspicuous. Believe me, it's really going to leave us at the opaque distance that separates us from those who are closest to us. What is the opaque distance that separates us from those who are closest to us, except an experience of the uncanny? There's a sense in which everything we need to know is not just in the praying mantis example, but here on page eight to nine, when he's trying to play around with the idea of how much space to give his audience to address this topic. And then you'll note from there, he shifts to Heidegger, Sartre, and Freud, this little triangulation of great people who've talked about anxiety. Kierkegaard's mentioned a bit, but that's about it. So he gives them a little bit of breathing room, and then he dips into Freud with inhibition, symptom, and anxiety. That's that weird chart that pops up on page 13. And then it's all Lacan for the rest. So what he does with this kind of literature review that involves fleeting references to Heidegger, Sartre, and Freud, is he's trying to give his audience some breathing room before he tries to shove a Lacanian term for anxiety down their throats. Great question about Dasun Heimlicka. We will be coming back to it. 
So we don't need to exhaust it here. What else do you have out there? Any other questions before we get back to what's at stake in this weird little chart? I had a little. Uh, I don't, oh, so sorry. you go. I just, I just had a quick um, sort of backtracking a little bit when you were talking about what does the big other want from my ego? And you resolved that as wanting me to like acknowledge my fragmentation and my gross, you know, materiality type thing. And I, I just scratch down what does the other want me to desire to be and i wonder if you feel like that fits as well or if that's a different direction i think that that's a, would be an antidote to anxiety because it puts us back on the path of desire yeah that that would be the thing and that's what we're, when we really start getting into desire which is where we're going to go next we've done need and demand and now i want to show you how desire unravels from that is we're going to be addressing that very topic how do we arrive at this famous Lacanian claim that um, our desire is always the desire of the other? And that's one really great way to put it. What do they want me to be? And in fact, that's really the question. It's the final question that the neurotic puts to the big other before they have no choice but to confront their own castration. And that is, what do you want from me? This is the point when the fight has gone on for 45 minutes and you lose track of what you're even fighting about. And you turn to your partner and you say, what the fuck do you want from me? Like, what do you want? Like, what's the deal? Just tell me what it is. In other words, issue a demand. Give me a demand. Tell me what it is you want so that I can either give it to you or dip but tell me what you want. And anxiety is right around the, the corner because part of what the other is dealing with is the fact that they don't know what they want, but they feel pretty invigorated by you asking. So the honest answer is, I don't know what I want from you. Please keep asking. That would be the hysterics response. The anxious response is something like this. You know what I want from you. That's what provokes anxiety. I'm like, motherfucker, I don't know what you want from me. That's why I asked. I don't know. Oh, you know. You know what I want from you. Oh, my gosh. I have no idea what it is you want. No, for real, like legit. I don't know what you want from me. Oh, you know. And then you go to bed and you're like, I can't sleep. What the fuck was that all about? That's called anxiety. So this question of what does the other want me to be or what does the other want me to have, having and being will be some concepts that we start messing with here too. So fundamental to what we're up to. I love this. We're so on track. I love it. Um. Can you say a little bit more about the association of embodiment to repression? Yeah, I didn't want to go too far into that um, because it gets into like more Freudian, like id based stuff. But I guess what I mean to suggest is that the basic law of society is enjoy as little as possible. And what that results in typically 
is a repression of the erogenous zones on the human body where enjoyment is usually experienced. So we call them swimsuit zones for a reason, because it's the part of the human body, usually erogenous zones, that we never show anywhere else, except in the bedroom. It's where you don't have a tan. And that's part of what happens to embodiment once the child is introduced into the symbolic, is they start feeling insecure about their body. This is partly how Freud arrived at the castration complex. Lacan's doing a little bit of work with that, but more at the level of language. But it's fundamental here. I don't want to go too far into it except to say that at the level of each of our bodies, according to Lacan, we still feel in our bones like babies. We still feel like we lack motor skills, like we're discombobulated, like we are the fragmented body. So the mirror stage essay is a good place to read some of this stuff. And if you don't want to read it and you just want lectures, holler at me and I'll send you a link to something that could help. But the baby in front of a mirror usually has to grapple with the experience of realizing that the baby in the mirror, the image, seems to be a better baby, more coordinated, less fragmented, probably better at competing for resources, a baby that should be the subject of our envy. And as time goes on, that part of us, the fragmented part, where we always feel like we're basically just worms, gets repressed. And it's not all that gets repressed, but it's one of the things that undergoes primary repression. And the trigger for that in the Lacanian world is what he calls in our readings the unary trait the primal signifier that introduces the child into language. And that primal signifier is no. So let me summarize this really quickly, what I'm saying here. The basic structure of society is the law. The basic structure of the law is prohibition. Thou shalt not. And the basic thou shalt not that underpins society is thou shalt not enjoy. Now, for those of you that have been around the block, you know that when I say enjoyment, I don't mean pleasure. Pleasure is permissible. Pleasure is a comfy couch. It's the chair you're sitting in right now, I hope. It's that cozy sweatshirt that you're wearing right now. Not the suit that you didn't put on, not the pantsuit. This is instead something that feels good. Pleasure is what happens after a meal. Enjoyment is what happens when you eat too much. Enjoyment is the experience of pleasure at its outer limit, at the level of pain. So jouissance is the word we use for enjoyment. And the reason why people don't like to translate that much from French is not so much because there's no equivalent, but because jouissance brings with it a sense of sexual enjoyment, orgasm. And so compare, for instance, the experience of orgasm, which is enjoyment, where your body seizes up, your face contorts, you make all kinds of fucking weird-ass noises. Your body basically spazzes out. Think about this time. How many moments 
Have you had an orgasm and accidentally farted at the same time? Ha, see, y'all don't want to admit that shit, but that's real. That is the real. The real is the fart that happens in the middle of the orgasm. The orgasm itself is enjoyment. My point here though, is that this is a body in duress. At the peak of enjoyment, you are in a state of seizure. That is jouissance. Pleasure is what happens afterwards when you drift off into a weird kind of sleep. Pleasure is what happens when you then butt naked, walk to the fridge, get out the tub of ice cream and start eating it straight there at the counter, right? That's pleasure. They're different. The basic prohibition of society is a prohibition against enjoyment. You can pursue pleasure, Thomas Jefferson told us, as much as you want, but don't mess with enjoyment. What it means to be genitalized is to have your enjoyment sensors reduced to a few erogenous zones. So now what the law says is you can enjoy, but only when your penis is involved. You can enjoy, but only in the swimsuit zone area. That's the site of enjoyment. If you get off, and experience enjoyment involving any other body part, welcome to perversion. That's what society tells you. So to be a properly genitalized being is to live a repressed relation to your human form. And it is a form that sometimes farts when it comes. And we don't like to talk about that stuff. We're grinning right now about it because it's one of those things that is taboo. So I'm thinking of repression here, not just at the level of an individual psychology, but also at the level of a society about taboo topics. And being a fragmented body is not something that we like to talk about. The baby that cries on the flight is one that we wish never came. The elderly person that holds us up in line or on the road is one that belongs in a retirement home. We try and take people who are differently abled and shuttle them off into all the little areas where they can be out of the way for the rest of us. That's one way that society represses embodiment at the level of fragmentation, at the level of feeling inadequate. It's the same thing we do too when we get up and get dressed in the morning. There are parts of our bodies that we are proud of, that we like to show off. It may be your hair, it may be your biceps, it may be whatever the hell it is. And that's what you put forward. That's the part of your skin that you show. And then there's the part of your body that's a little bit embarrassing to you. The part that you don't like it as much. Maybe it has a scar on it. Maybe it's not as good as you wish it were. And so we figure out ways to tuck it away. Isn't this the purpose of cosmetics as well? To feature the parts of our faces and bodies that we want to show others and to hide the rest. This process of concealment and unconcealment for the Heideggerians out there is one that in Lacanian terms, we can talk about in terms of repression. Now, I'm not being too technical with repression here. Notice I'm also not talking about trauma. I'm not talking about traumatic encounters with the real. 
and the repression that comes from that. I'm not making too much fuss about primary and secondary repression. For us, for our purposes, the most important aspect of repression is the unary trait. This is the no that society dishes to us. It's the no that the parent also gave to the child when they said, no more crying, use your words. That's a prohibition. It's a prohibition against living your life like a baby any longer. Now, every time you cry, you usually experience a kind of release known as jouissance. And it's a release because it's a release from the constraints of society that says you always need to put your shit into words. And those of y'all that are therapists, you know how this works. You have clients that pass in and out of speech and tears left and right. So this is not news to you. Bear in mind too that I'm not that kind of doctor. So don't take what I'm saying here as like clinical advice in any regard. All I'm good at doing is reading Lacan and talking about what he's up to. So just hold me at that, but bear in mind that what he is really doing is trying to train clinicians. All the work that he is doing here is for an audience of clinicians who wanna learn how to be better at their jobs. So I can't help but bring a little bit of that into this, even though bear in mind, I'm not that kind of doctor. So the stuff on the unary, tra unary trait is 21 to 22 key pages for us. What I want to draw from this diagram is that the process of introducing a child into language leaves a lot to be desired. This process in Lacanian terms is known as castration. It's an unfortunate choice of word. A much better word for it is the word I've been using for the past 10 minutes, prohibition. What the parent prohibits when they tell the child to use their words, it's not a prohibition against crying. It's a prohibition against any furtherance of life where all you have access to is the cry. That is really important here. What is fundamentally prohibited is any further living without prohibition. The great start of the no of the father, the name of the father, of castration, is a prohibition against life without prohibition. Does that make sense? It's a weird one, it's a weird logic to wrap your heads around, but it's what Lacan asks us to do with this notion of the unary trait. Whatever language you learned, whatever your first word was, the signification of that word was always the same. The first word you heard, it wasn't your name. The function of that word was no. No more living without the signifier. No more life without language. 
No more crying and expecting to get what you want. Now you have words as well. And now you have to choose. Do I use my words or do I cry? And parents will say that. This is the great choice. You can either use your words and tell me what's bothering you, or you can continue to cry and we're not going to have any fun. You can use your words and then we can have ice cream afterwards, or you can continue to cry and we're not going to have any ice cream. So there are all these like more or less coercive ways that the parent forces the child into the symbolic. Now here's the deal. It's not a bad thing to be coerced into the symbolic. It's actually the great form of containment. For those of you that read Winnicott and some of the other like British object relations folks, this is the way that people feel held. This is the basis for feeling like you have a sense of self, coherence, you fit in the world. That's the job of the symbolic. Lacan believes that one of the great origins of psychosis is somebody who refuses, who repudiates, who forecloses this prohibition, who does not accept the no, who repudiates their own castration. The word castration here, obviously, we're not talking about anybody physically operating on your jump. Castration here just means that you have to give something up in order to find your place in the world, in order to get that ice cream. And what you have to give up, mind me on this, what you have to give up is any continuance of your life where you didn't have to give anything up. This is really important and it's one of the basic missteps that Lacanian readers make all the time. They think that what the child gives up in castration, they think that what the parent prohibits when they exercise this prohibition is the feeling of wholeness and coherence that the child felt before that point. When they were just at one with their world like a lizard on a rock, they pooped when they wanted, they pissed when they wanted, people brought them food. It was a blissed out Edenic experience. Wrong. That is one of the greatest misreadings of what Lacan is doing here. Wholeness is not something that is lost when split subjectivity is found. Wholeness is something that can only be accessed after split subjectivity has been found and only accessed as a fantasy. Adam and Eve didn't know they were in Eden until they had been kicked out. And what I would suggest is they weren't even in Eden until they got kicked out. They didn't know where the fuck they were until they got kicked out. Wholeness, bliss, uteromorphic experience at the level of infancy. That is not something that we had and then subsequently lost when the signifier introduced the cut of no into us. It is something that can only be accessed in the field of the signifier 
as loss. As longing for. As fantasy. We weren't previously whole and then the signifier shattered us. Lacan's point is that we've always felt shattered. That's the fragmented baby. We weren't previously blissed out and then suddenly lost all that shit when we had to like learn the mother tongue. Not at all. It's the sheer fact that the mother tongue divides us between bioanimalistic urges, Freudians hear the id, and the norms and rules of society, Freudians hear the superego. The sheer fact that we are now split between those two impulses is what gets us fantasizing about a world where we're not split. The fantasy of wholeness is an effect structure of the fact of fragmentation. In other words, it's just the opposite of what we often assume. Wholeness is an effect structure, a fantasy that we maintain to compensate for the difficulties of fragmentation, which are the true facts of life. The fact of life is that we are split. The fantasy of wholeness is what allows us to deal with that all too often. And you can see now how you get from the book of Genesis to the New Testament, to the promise of heaven. And you can also see why Christianity for thousands of years has been peddled to slaves and subaltern subjectivities, left and right. Because what it says over and over again is, Suffer the bullshit of your lived experience, knowing that eternity, wholeness, and perfection await. Yes, you live a miserable life now, Mr. Colonized Subject, but just remember, heaven awaits. Christianity is what it is, second only to capital in terms of popularity, because it plays a part in using the fantasy of wholeness to come as a defense against serious irritation about the facts of fragmentation now. So just remember what I'm getting after here. The unary trait on 21 to 22 that we're about to read is a primal no, a negation, a prohibition. And it's a prohibition against any more life without prohibition in it. So let's check it out and then we'll take a little break. We're on page 21, toward the bottom. This subjective initium, it's a weird stuff that's happening here. And part of my job is to trot it out for you. Well, nothing, nothing other than the subjective initium I emphasized during the whole first part of my teaching last year. 
namely that there's no conceivable advent of a subject as such except on the basis of the prior introduction of a signifier and the most straightforward of signifiers known as the unary trait. What I'm telling you is that the unary trait is a primal signifier, the function of which was no, N-O. The unary trait precedes the subject. In the beginning was the word, now you see why it got us back to Eden, means that in the beginning stands the unary trait. Everything that is teachable has to preserve the stigmata of this ultra simple initium. It's the only thing that can justify in our eyes the ideal of straightforwardness. Simplex, singularity of the trait. This is what we cause to enter the real, whether the real likes it or not. One thing is certain, it does enter it and it has already entered before us. It's along this path that all those subjects who've been dialoguing for a few centuries now have already had to get by as best they can with the condition that precisely, here it is y'all, betwixt them and the real lies the field of the signifier. For it was already with the operation of the unary trait, that primal no, that they were constituted as subjects. The diagram I just did for you is showing you how this happens, how a baby is constituted as a subject. The unary trait is the parent eventually coaching the baby from the field of need into demand. And the technique of coaching in question here is prohibition, technically known as castration. In analysis, there is something that stands prior to everything we can elaborate or understand. I shall call this the presence of the other with a capital A. And by this here, he means the symbolic society, all the rules and norms and laws that govern your family life, your neighborhood, your social order and the like. The other is there. It's on this path and with the same intention that we meet the indication I've already given you concerning something that goes much farther still, namely anxiety. The path in question is the path on page four that leads up from the big A other to that little d known as desire. The graph of desire is a trail map. His use of path here is very specific. This is a trail map for subjectivity. And everybody finds themselves right now, at this very moment, somewhere on that map. Lacan right now is talking about the pathway that gets us from the big A other who has all the answers to the experience of desire and with it, not knowing what we want. But the point before we pause again, is that he's saying that this is all in place before you emerge as a waking, talking, remembering subject. It doesn't mean you didn't exist prior to that point. You were there, all right, but you didn't have a life. You were alive, but you didn't have a life. It's, at the, it's in the field of the symbolic that you can have a life, an identity, a sense of self, a sense of meaning, 
a sense of containment. This would be the great disagreement with the object relations school, especially the Brits after Klein. Containment occurs in the field of the symbolic, not in the pre-linguistic experience of the mother-child dyad. That's not where containment occurs. In fact, that's a field of horror, real horror. And if you don't believe me, just think about the biology of an infant. Six months old, they have a highly developed perceptual ability. They can see across the room. They can see all kinds of shit, but they can't get up and do anything about it. They can see the dog walking over to them, but they don't even know how to cry out, please somebody save me from this dog. They watch the dog approach its victim and can do nothing more than watch. Lacan's belief when it comes to infancy is not that it's some uteromorphic experience of bliss. It's not the Garden of Eden. It's the lost book of Dante's Inferno. Shit is raw. Shit is animalistic. The only reason why Lacan would have liked to live to be 150, I think, is so that he could watch nature documentaries. And when you really get into some nature documentaries, yeah, it's beautiful and all, but that shit is fierce. There's some rugged business that happens out there in nature left and right. That's what it's like to be a baby. Constantly subject to the whims of a bunch of idiots. Always in danger of death. It's terrifying. The symbolic is what provides us with safety. The symbolic is what saves us. <clears throat> Even at the risk of neurosis. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.